0: Joseph Orton did it, something he told himself he would never do. Shoot a man to kill in order to please his lover. John's words still echoing in his mind after he pulled the trigger. Oh Lord. Joseph jolted back a few steps before slipping on the roof of the shed. He dropped his rifle and fell to the ground beside it. He took a moment to make sure he wasn't injured, grabbed his rifle, and ran off into the woods. He needed to get rid of the rifle as fast as he could. Earlier that day, he had stowed away his coat, a bundle and his boots near the northwestern corner of the property. He did this as he knew the boot prints would be recognized. After grabbing his items, he continued north about 60 feet, Where he was met by a ravine. Near the sandy waters, he drove the rifle into the mud and covered it with damp leaves. Once he changed his socks and put on his boots and coat, he continued until he was a mile away from Cherry Hill on Pearl Street. He made his way back to Cherry Hill as though he was just coming back from town, and when he got to the stable, he saw others gathering and walking towards the house. Joseph followed. When the group got to the house, he was told that John Whipple was shot and that he was needed. When Joseph saw the body of John lying there on the office floor, his face had paled. But why? Maybe he had hoped that the shot didn't kill him, and just wounded him. Maybe it was because he feared that he was already suspected of killing him. But when Abraham, Elsie's cousin, told Joseph to take his gun and search around the house and property to see if anyone suspicious was hanging around, Joseph must have breathed an internal sound of relief. No one had suspected him, at least, not yet. Joseph and Elsie hadn't spoken a word to each other since the murder of her husband, but a few days later she met him in the kitchen. They suspect you and me, and talk of taking us up. Just as she finished her sentence, the door to the kitchen opened, and Abraham told Joseph that he needed to talk to him. Joseph remembered their promise to each other, and hoped for the best. But when Abraham told him that the police wanted to talk to him at the station, he knew deep down that it was over, that he was caught. He didn't fight. He went to the police willingly. He tried to stick with his story about the suspicious persons walking around the house late at night, about his whereabouts, But what he didn't expect was a statement to be laid down in front of him. Elsie's statement Someone had recognized her at the Hill's Inn. It was a place that Elsie and Joseph had traveled together to share a night of passion. When confronted by the police, Elsie confessed to everything, except to one thing the murder. She was adamant that she had nothing to do with John's death and that it was all of Joseph's idea and doing. So much for the promise they made to each other. That was it. It was time for Joseph to come clean about everything. My name isn't Joseph Orton, he started. He told the police that his name was, in fact, Jesse Strang that his family was a prominent farming family in Ohio, that he was requesting representation. He sent for J.V.N. Yates, but when Mr. Yates declined to represent him, he sent for Calvin Pepper. Jesse stated that he was from Ohio, That he was married with four young children. Jesse suspected his wife of being unfaithful, and instead of confronting her about it, He ran away and changed his name. He never intended to stay in Albany long, but when he met Elsie, he couldn't make himself leave. He sat down and wrote out a statement. And while he did shoot John, Elsie was the foundation of the whole of it. The two were taken to the lockup to await their trials. Elsie sometimes got to be let out of her cell to go on walks within the building. She often made her way to Jesse, laying down next to his cell, and the two talked. But Elsie rarely had anything nice to say to him. If you had held your tongue, we might have got clear. But Jesse wasn't that easily swayed. He knew about her confession, and knew she had pinned it all on him. Did she even love him, or did she see him as an easy way to get access to her money? Jesse knew it didn't matter now. They were both in custody, and deep down, he still loved her. On July 31st, Elsie's trial had started. She was taken into the chambers and sat near some of her relatives. She appeared to be extremely exhausted, her eyes puffy from tears. The prosecution started by saying that Elsie was being charged as an accessory before the fact to planning the murder of her husband. More than 20 witnesses were called in to testify. It seemed that Elsie did well in playing the part of the upset widow. She was quoted as saying, How forlorn I am. I have neither grandfather nor grandmother, father nor mother, brother or sister, and my husband now lies a corpse, and I shall not live to see my boy grow up. Many testified that they believed Elsie had something to do with it, but she was always careful with her words. They recounted conversations between the two, they were most unusual as though they were speaking in code. No one doubted the affair. That much was clear. But what wasn't clear was did she really have a hand in killing her husband? From Jesse's statement, she was a wicked woman who used her looks and body to get her way. However, it's already been proven That Jesse tends to lie A secret life that no one knew about A wife and children If you were to read his full statement You'd too believe That Elsie Whipple Was fully capable of the planning And if we didn't know that Joseph already did it The possibility Of killing her husband herself But The jury didn't believe it They saw Elsie As but a meek and mild woman Even the judge stated that while Elsie was guilty to a certain extent, she was incapable of masterminding a murder. The jury took that as a cue, and five days later, when the verdict was reached, she was found innocent of all charges and was free to go. While Jesse was glad that he wasn't called to testify against her, he was joyful that she was able to go free. Jesse Strang wasn't so lucky. He was found guilty of the planning and murder of John Whipple and was sentenced to hang on August 24, 1827. On the day of the execution, more than 30,000 people showed up at the National Amphitheater to watch the hanging of Jesse Strang. They came from all over. His junior counsel was in attendance sending out copies of his 35-page confession. Maybe, just maybe once people read it, they'd know that while he was at fault, it wasn't just him. At 1. 15 p.m., Jesse was led to the gallows, wearing a white gown trimmed in black. The day was hot, and for 30 minutes, Jesse just stood there, becoming covered in sweat, waiting for the hangman to pull the lever. At 1.45 p.m., the hangman finally completed his job, and Jesse dropped, hanged, until dead. Those who gathered to watch let out such a tremendous howl. The state of New York decided to ban public executions. So now we are at the end of the confession of Jesse Strang. I bet some of you are wondering what became of Elsie Whipple. Well, soon after her lover was executed, she quickly took her inheritance and moved to Syracuse, then to New Jersey. Not long after, she met and married a man by the name of Nathan Freeman. They had one child together, but it didn't last long. Maybe it was karma But in 1932, Nathan passed away, and Elsie soon followed. While we don't know for sure what led to their passing, it was noted that cholera was widespread in that area during the time. The Cherry Hill House would go on to become a museum in 1964, and is still open to the public today. There are a total of 70,000 items on display, over 230 years' worth of history. In the early 2000s, the curator of the museum was asked about the murder, and about Elsie Whipple. They were quoted as saying, Connections and money, that's how she got off.